Today we'll speak about <coughs> the third and fourth tetrads of Anapanasati to follow through with what we were talking about yesterday. In the first tetrad we investigate and train or siksa regarding the the body until we have mastery over it. Then in the second tetrad we we study, investigate and train with the Vedana, the feelings, until we have mastery over them. In the third tetrad we will study, investigate and train regarding the mind itself until there is mastery over the mind. <clears throat> Regarding this thing we call mind or the jitta, this is something that for the most part we we don't know anything about. We've never paid much attention to it. We don't study it. We haven't investigated it. So we're practically completely in the dark regarding this and so therefore there's we have no b ability to deal with it correctly as for this jita it's impossible to know exactly what it is this is just like electricity we don't really know exactly what electricity is but because it appears and manifests in different ways and we have things like amperage, voltage, current, power that we can measure, then we, we get a sense of what electricity is, although we don't know the electricity directly. It works the same way with the mind or the jitta. Because it appears, because it has various functions, we can get to know it, although we never can know directly exactly what it is. Now electricity is merely physical, so it's, it's not that complicated or difficult to investigate. But the mind is a whole other story, it's a whole higher reality beyond the physical. This mind is its mental, its psychic, up into including its the spiritual as well. And so this mental and spiritual reality is what we will be investigating now. But it's something much more subtle and difficult to investigate than physical things like electricity. Although we can never really say or know clearly exactly what the mind is, still we have, humanity has found ways to control the mind, to govern the mind, so that it can be of the most use and benefit for our lives. 
just as we have come across electricity and learned how to control it in order to make the most use of it. Even so, even though we may not be able to say exactly what, ele- what the mind is, there's one thing we can say, and that just like electricity, mind is just an element, just a natural element. This word element, or in Pali it's called datu, datu, which we can translate as natural element or natural essence. This word datu means in literally that which can carry itself or that which maintains itself by itself. These, however, it's made very clear in the Pali scriptures that these datu, these things that can carry themselves or maintain themselves, are in no ways selves, souls, spirits, or anything like that. Although this element or this natural element of the mind, of consciousness, is something we can never really know directly as far as what exactly it is. Still, in Buddhism, we have knowledge and methods to to control, to regulate the mind so that it will be of the most use to us. And essentially what this means is we'll have the knowledge and ability to use the mind in a way that does not bring up dukkha, um, the way that does not cause suffering. But what's quite strange and marvelous about this whole business of the mind is that when we talk about controlling the mind, it's the mind that controls the mind. It's the mind that deals with the mind. It's the mind that trains the mind. Now these, when we speak in this way, it may be a bit difficult to understand, but this is, this is the facts about how, how it is with the mind. It's the mind that studies the mind and trains the mind and controls the mind. This, this very profound fact can be summarized in the world, it's one controls oneself in order to be one's own refuge, or to control oneself so that this self is the refuge of self, of oneself. We need to know not only the mind, but the basis or foundation for the mind. Just like when to understand electricity, we need to know the thing on which that is the basis for the occurrence of electricity. For example, in 
mechanical forms of electricity arise through a dynamo or a generator of some kind, or that there are certain chemical reactions giving rise to a chemical kind of electricity. In the same way with the mind, we need to understand what is the, the basis on which the mind is established. And of course, this means the, the body, the, the physical reality of our lives. And so it's necessary to know these things together, both body and mind, both the physical and the mental, must be understood together. Or as in the Pali, it's said that we must investigate and understand Nama and Rupa, together. Now when most people hear the words Nama and Rupa or even Nama Rupa, they think that these are two things. If we say body-mind or mind-body, people usually take this to be two different things. But you should understand that the word Nama Rupa is singular. This is one thing, that in reality, body and mind cannot be separated from each other. If one tries to separate body from mind, then the result will be death. In reality, these two, what seem to be two things, are in fact just one thing. So it's important to understand this, that body-mind or mind-body, Nama Rupa, is one thing. If we knew Pali, it would be, this would be very clear because in the Pali the form is Nama Rupang, which is the singular form, but often in English we write it and pronounce it Nama Rupa, which is the plural form, and we have difficulty telling the difference, though in Pali it's quite clear. So now we're going to study this jitta, this mind, that which is based upon the body. We'll study it in different ways in order to understand it thoroughly. Now this mind can experience itself <coughs> within itself. And so this is where we begin investigating the mind with investigating experiencing how the mind is right now within itself what is the mind how is the mind experiencing now we can know this for ourselves there's no need to ask anybody how is my mind this is something to experience directly for oneself one can experience this one can note it one can be mindful of this using the mind itself to know exactly what state the mind is in, what this state is like, how this state functions and how it influences further things. This is to be known by ourselves. There's no point trying to ask somebody else what is going on in our minds.
the most important thing is to know whether the mind is attaching to anything or not. Right now, is the mind totally free, totally spotless, unencumbered, unattached, or is the mind grasping and clinging to anything? This is the most important thing to know, to experience. Right now, is the mind free or is it grasping at something, clinging to something? And then when this mind is attached to something, when it's engaged or involved with something, then what are the results of that? What kind of state is that? What kind of danger or harm is there in that attachment? This is what this is a very important thing to to investigate. Then we need to be able to to tell the difference between the different kinds of attachments and states that arise to see what kind of desire or aspiration there is in the mind right now. We need to be able to analyze the mind in these these different ways as to exactly how it is right now. The second lesson regarding the mind, the first lesson is this experiencing the mind as to whatever state it is in at this moment. The second lesson is to make the mind glad, to bring, to summon gladness into the mind. Since we have already been successful at practicing the second tetrad, been very, become very familiar and obtained mastery over the feelings of rapture and satisfaction and contentment, then it's possible to use these, to call these up to gladden the mind. This is the second lesson regarding the mind. or when we're living our lives properly, when we live our lives in the right way, then we can, by being aware of this fact, we have a contentment with our lives, with, with ourselves. And this leads to self-respect. To recall this fact will bring about satis a sense of satisfaction or gladness about our lives. So to use this method is another way to gladden the mind, to summon up gladness. If we can practice in this way, then wherever we are at whatever time, we can have a comfortable mind, a mind that is at peace with itself, that is comfortable within itself. We don't need to wander around or spend lots of money trying to find pleasure and joy. We can have enjoyment within ourselves by training in this way. Now this kind of enjoyment comes from correctness, from a life that is 
that is proper and going along in the right way. It isn't a kind of pleasure or enjoyment that comes from the defilements, from, from desires and attachments. So by living, having this correctness in our lives, we can very easily have a, a glad, joyful mind. Now, when pe- things like passion are very hot and messy things, and we often have kinds of passionate joys and pleasures, which are really quite dirty kind of things in the mind. But now we're talking about a joyfulness that is clean and pure, one that doesn't have any harmful effects on the mind, which in fact can be quite healthy for the mind. This is the joyfulness of of Dhamma. We'll be successful in practicing this lesson when we are able to replace passionate joy or defiled joy with Dhamma joy or the joyfulness of Dhamma. When we can replace, when we can replace that defiled joyfulness with Dhamma joy, then we are successful in this step of practice. The next lesson is to to concentrate the mind. In Pali, this is called samadhahang, which means to to make the mind very firm, to gather it together and focus it on one thing. Normally, the the energy of the mind is scattered all over the place. And so here, this is to concentrate all that energy and focus it on one object. This is easy to understand if you compare it with a magnifying glass. A magnifying glass can focus the sun's rays into a point. Normally, the sunlight isn't strong enough to, to start fires all by itself. But with a magnifying glass, that sun's rays can be gathered and focused into a point so, the, so that the power, the energy in, these, in the sunlight is focused all in one place. And this can be powerful enough to start a fire so that a flame will will occur. With the mind, it's in the same way. Normally, the, the mind's energy is diffuse, it's scattered, but it can be focused and gathered together so that all this power is focused on just one thing. This can be very useful. You yourselves know the benefits of a concentrated mind to all the, all the uses that it can be put. One can have a concentrated mind whenever one needs it to the degree that is necessary when one, through 
when one can practice this lesson successfully, this lesson that is about concentrating the mind. Now, when we talk about concentration, this is something that can be misunderstood or the meaning can be a little too broad or general. So one should know that in Buddhism, the concentration we're talking about has three factors or three qualities to it. The first is purity. The properly concentrated mind is very clean and pure. Second, that mind is very firm, stable, and secure. And then third, that mind is active. It's a mind that's ready to do whatever needs to be done. These three qualities or factors are present in right concentration, the qualities of purity, firmness, and readiness or activeness. In this word, purity or cleanliness, this includes a number of other things, such as freedom. If the mind isn't free, then it's not pure. So when we say that there's this quality of purity, that means the mind is free from from things. It's not stuck on things or caught up in things or engaged with things. So purity includes freedom as well. And then to be concentrated to has a lot of different meanings within it as well, or this firmness, stability of mind has different levels. It can be just an ordinary equilibrium or balance of mind. And then this this balance, this equilibrium can be can develop deeper and deeper into states of concentration called absorption. It can go into what we might call trances, into where the mind is totally gathered and focused together in a very deep way. This third factor in Pali is called kamaniya, kamaniya, which means that the mind is completely fit and ready to perform whatever function or responsibility is required of it. This total fitness or readiness, preparedness, means that this mind is not only able to do something, but it's, it can do so instantly. It has this quickness, is right there in this readiness or this activeness of mind, which is called kamaniya. Please remember that in this there are two important points. The first is ability, and the second is activity or skillfulness. Now the mind that can be ready and able and and active in this way has tremendous benefits. And it's quite amusing that 
although we don't really know what this mind is, we're able to develop it and improve it to this stage where it can be concentrated in this very high and refined way so that it's perfectly able, active, and ready. If anyone is interested in metaphysics, then they should be interested in, in this, and be interested in these things of the mind which are above physics, beyond physics. That means to know and understand these kind of things which are beyond the ability and knowledge of physical sciences, of physics, to understand and, and manage. The last lesson regarding the mind is about liberation. It may sound a little bit communist or revolutionary, but this is the next lesson to liberate the mind if there's anything that is still trapping or oppressing the mind, to liberate the mind from that or to liberate that thing from the mind. The, an image that will make this easy to understand is to free the mind, to liberate the mind from anything that it's sticking to or grasping at. Or on the other hand, to free the mind from anything that is encircling or clutching at the mind to free the mind from the things it clings to or to free the mind from the things that cling to it. This is the meaning of liberating the mind. These things that cling to the mind or that the mind are clinging to have many levels and <coughs> aspects, many meanings to them. It's necessary to to practice until being able to liberate the mind from all these things. To do so is the highest art there is. We can call this Buddhist art. Buddhist art doesn't mean statues and paintings and Buddha images and things. It means this mental art, this being able to liberate the mind from all these different things. For us, subtle understanding of these things the mind is attached to or that attach to the mind, we can talk about four, four basic categories. The first is sensuality. The second are wrong views and opinions about, about the world, about life, about spiritual practice. The third are being caught up in superstitious practices, superstitious traditions. And then the fourth is to be attached to concepts of self. These four things are the, the different kinds of things we attach to. 
So in practicing with the mind, there are these four basic lessons. First, experiencing it in, from all different aspects. Second, gladdening it. Third, stabilizing it. And fourth, releasing it. You should know all four of these and should do your best to practice them. This will take a lot of patience and endurance on your part to practice on this very refined level will not be easy but it's something that you should strive to do that you should do your best to do please don't be faint-hearted and give up easily if you try to understand and practice these lessons then it will bring you great benefits this brings us to the fourth tetrad which is all about Dhamma or natural truth. This one is called Kamanu Bhatsana, which means contemplation of Dhamma, contemplation of natural truth. And this includes everything. It includes the body, the feelings, and it includes the mind. In this, in this one, this is where the mind comes to understand and know natural truth very, very deeply, comprehensively, in an exalted way. In talking about knowing this natural truth, we mean, here it means specifically know, to know the characteristics of all things, to know the fundamental natures of all things, meaning to know the impermanence, the dukkhaness, the painfulness, and the selflessness of things. This is to know the natural truth of things in this life, in this world. We can talk about it in more detail if we want, or we can talk in terms of these three characteristics of impermanence, dukkhaness or painfulness, and selflessness. But the essence is to know these things directly, profoundly, so that we understand things in the most profound way. This first thing is called anijang, anijang, which means unstable, uncertain, insecure. It means to be constantly changing. In the Buddha's time, there was a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus who taught pantare, which means all flows or all is flowing. Everything is in flux. And the Buddha was recorded to have said that in there, off in a distant land, there is someone who teaches impermanence just like we do. And he may have been referring to Heraclitus, who among other things taught all, all is flux, everything flows. Now these things that are unstable, constantly changing, always falling apart, 
have within them the the activity of being difficult to to bear. It's really hard to live with these constantly changing things. This is what we call dukkha, or here it's the quality of of dukkha, the inherent dukkhaness of things that they're hard to bear, hard to endure because they're constantly changing. Now, when we take this word dukkha and translate it as suffering, this is only correct in a, a little bitty way. Suffering only captures a small part of the meaning. Dukkha also means, first of all, it means to difficult to endure, hard to bear, hard to live with. It also means that when we see it, we'll hate it. That in seeing things that are like this, they're, they're seen to be truly ugly. And that finally they're empty of anything that is truly satisfying or pleasurable. That these constantly changing things are difficult to bear, once you see that, you see how ugly they are. And that in seeing this, there's, there com there's complete absence of satisfaction or pleasure in them. This is the full meaning of dukkha. If you can find an English word or a German or whatever word that will include all three of these meanings, then you can use that. But until somebody finds such a word, we prefer the Pali word dukkha, which is much more profound and, than any mm -hmm. translation. So we hope that this word can be inserted into the vocabularies of all the different languages in the world. The word dukkha, which means hard to bear, means it's, once you see it, it's, it's really ugly and empty of essence or substance. When things are unstable and constantly changing, when they're hard to endure, then how can we call them self? How can we take them to be I or mine? This, this characteristic the Buddha called anatta, anatta, which means not self. If they're constantly changing and difficult to bear, then how can they be self? At all, usually in human experience, people are looking for the self. And in India, at the Buddha's time, they were they were trying to find the highest self. That, but the Buddha just dumped all that with the teaching of not-self, that all this business about self is, is, is delusion, and that the real fact is anatta, that things are not-self. One who understands anatta understands Buddhism. This is the heart of Buddhism 
this truth of anatta to see see it properly we can compare it with other points of view there are three fundamental points of view one is atta that everything is full of self then there is nirata that there's nothing that there's nothing at all and then in the middle is anatta not self so there are these three perspectives and if we understand them then we'll see understand anatta correctly anatta is not one of these extremes it's the reality be- beyond the extremes the first extreme is to take everything to be self to be full of self to be permanent and lasting in all this the other extreme is to deny everything to say that there's nothing and then in the middle there is anatta not self this non-extremism of buddhism means to be correct we call it sama or samatha samatha which means correctness to stay away from these extremes which are incorrect is to live correctly to dwell in correctness and the essence of of being right or being correct is anatta anatta this not self or if you like the self that is not self having a self which is not self naturally ordinarily instinctually there is a feeling of self there naturally exists a feeling that of oneself being a being a self or of the world being full of selves this is natural or instinctual what we need to do is to investigate this until we see that this natural instinct or natural perception of self is really not self and this is what it means to have a self that is not self this natural sense of self is seen to be actually not self so inside there is this sense of self this this belief this concept of self and once there is this inner self then there are these outer things that are taken to be belonging to self so if there's the i inside then everything outside the i is taken to be mine so we have the self the things belonging to self and then there is attachment there's this attaching to things as self and as belonging to self so we have atta which means self atanya means connected to or concerned with <coughs> self and then upadana attachment so there's 
the thing that attaches, the things that are attached to, and the attachment itself. This, these three things are all based in, in illusion. Now, in this lesson, it's important, it's necessary to have a clear understanding of impermanence, dukkhaness, or this painfulness, and not-self. However, in the talk where the Buddha explained this practice, he only mentioned the first, anicca, or impermanence. But it was common throughout the, his talks that in many cases he would just mention impermanence, but in saying so, included also painfulness or this ugliness and not self, because in fact it's all one reality. And so we can call it, if we want to call it simply impermanence, we can, or if we want to go into more detail, for those who are new to these things, we can say impermanence, dukkhaness and and not self. So only impermanence was mentioned directly, but this has the meaning of including dukkhaness and not self. We can study just impermanence if we want, or we can study these these three characteristics we've been talking about, or we can get more detailed and talk about nine or ten different aspects of impermanence, except that right now we don't have the time. The thing is to really see what impermanence is, see what its effects are, see what influence it has, see what the consequences of impermanence are. This is the, the heart of this lesson. The second lesson about Dhamma is, well, the first lesson is to see impermanence. The second lesson is to see the results of seeing impermanence. The result of seeing impermanence is fading away. And to contemplate this fading away is what we go into in the second lesson. When impermanence is seen clearly, the natural result is a steady fading and fading and fading and fading away of attachment. The attachment to things that has happened because we didn't see impermanence now begins to fade away with the seeing of impermanence. To see this and contemplate it is the second lesson. It's like dyes fading away can be compared to dyes in a cloth, a dirty cloth that is stained. If it's left out in the sun, the sun will bleach it, and these stains and colors and whatever will fade and fade and fade away. So this, this second lesson is to experience this fading of attachment. It's like the realization of impermanence is like a bleach, 
a bleach or like the sunlight that bleaches out the dyes and stains of attachment. A lot of attachment can be stained into the mind and to fade this away, to bleach this out with understanding of impermanence and not self is what the second lesson is about. So when this fading away is happening, the thing is to feel this through our own direct experience, to be directly aware of this fading away, to feel it within ourselves. This is the second lesson. Not to assume that it's going to happen, but to experience it as it's happening. So the, the realization of impermanence is like a bleach or a bleaching agent. And the result of this is the bleaching away or the fading out of attachment. In the second lesson, the only thing to do is to observe, experience, feel this bleaching or fading out of attachment. When attachment fades and fades away, it eventually is extinct. And this brings us now to the third lesson regarding Dhamma, is to realize or to see, to contemplate this extinguishing of attachment, whether it happens a lot or happens a little, to contemplate whatever extinguishing of attachment is taking place. Then the fourth lesson is to contemplate that that attachment is ended. First attachment fades away, then it extinguishes, and then there is the end of attachment. Attachment is finished. Contemplating this is the fourth lesson. In the Pali, however, there's a strange word that's used here. The word used is patinitsaka, which means to throw away. What this means is that attachments now are thrown away. They're thrown back to their, to their owner. In attaching, we've claimed things to be I, to be mine. We've tried to take possession of things to own them. But now with the ending of attachment, when attachment is finished, we just throw it all back, realizing that none of it is I or mine. This bhati-nitsaka, contemplating the throwing back of all attachments. This is the fourth lesson. The amusing meaning of this throwing back is that we stop being thieves. All along we've been thieves in claiming all these things to be I and mine. We've been stealing them from their rightful owner. And so to throw back means to give up, to stop being a thief. And so we, we throw it back. Throwing back is more than just throwing things away. We throw them back. We return them to the rightful owner. 
this is the only way we can make up for our years of being thieves and and criminals. This is the somewhat amusing and strange meaning of this last lesson. This is a good time to compare all the tetrads to to see the progression. In the first tetrad we become masters over the body of the body. In the second tetrad we become masters of the feelings. In the third tetrad we become masters of the mind. And in the fourth we become masters of upadana or masters over attachment. In and then all dukkha ends. In this fourth tetrad we become masters over any sense of self, of soul, of ego. All of these are just self, soul, ego, whatever you call it. It's just attachment. And then becoming, having mastery over this attachment is to be free, is to end all dukkha. This is what the four tetrads of anapanasati how, this is how they work, how they progress until we, the final mastery, which is mastery over, over self. And self-mastery means to abandon, to let go of all attachment to anything as I, as self, as soul. So this is an overview or outline of anapanasati. We encourage you to analyze it, to explore it, and so you understand it, to analyze it and synthesize it so that you're able to practice it successfully. This is just an outline. Um, if we want to go into more detail, we'll have to do so at another time. But this gives you a starting point of, for your studies and exploration of Anapanasati. We hope that you'll explore this simply and realize all the benefits from it that are possible. And finally, let us express our happiness that although you came here as tourists, most of you just came here out of curiosity as wandering travelers, that you now leave as pilgrims searching for truth, searching for the highest thing in life, searching for the end of attachment. That you came as tourists is something very ordinary, but we're very happy that you now go as pilgrims looking for, with, with this understanding in your backpack, and searching for the, the highest meaning in life, searching for the highest Dhamma. And so at this time, we say thank you once again for coming, and we'll end today's talk at this point, and this will be the last. And last, would you please all have a life that doesn't bite its owner? That's all.